Wait, what? what is that? Coming over the horizon. Do, do you see it? It's coming into view. What is it? it? It looks glorious and legendary and downright awesome. Oh, wait, it's season three of Misconceptions. Hello, friends. I'm your host and MC, David White, and I just wanted to take a moment at the start of this episode to welcome you all to the third and final season of Misconceptions. To any new friends that might be trying to pick up our show with this episode, I suggest that maybe you do not try to pick up the show with this episode. As I said, this is the third and final season of Misconceptions, and there's going to be a lot of climaxes and spoilers and big reveals for some of these characters, and if you don't know these characters, it might not uh, hit you and resonate with you as well as it might. So go back to season one, go back to season two, listen to our early audio, get all caught up, and then come right back here to finish out this show. And to our returning fans and longtime friends, welcome. I hope that you are as excited as me to get to the finale season of Misconceptions. Now, we do have a recap segment that we recorded to catch everybody up on what happened in season two and refresh everybody's memories. So if you would rather not listen to that segment, you can skip ahead to about the 17-minute mark to get to the episode proper. And without further ado, season three of Misconceptions. They could not have been more different. Four citizens with hidden supernatural abilities. Bill, a father who had gambled away the souls of his wife and child with the ability to turn the tattoos on his body into weapons. Faye, an elementary teacher with the ability to control nature and possessed of a heart connected by fate to the reincarnated soul of Robin Hood. Rin, the owner of a small-scale tech company implanted with cybernetic additions he did not ask for. Esther, a faithful daughter who runs her father's bar after his death, all while using a mystical ring to help her investigate her father's suspicious death. What started as an investigation into a state-altering new drug hitting the streets became a larger investigation into the city's criminal underbelly. Mist-filled wells, shape-changing con artists, hidden offshore businesses, a horrendous monster designed to kill, shootouts with mafia soldiers, and the attempted assassination of district attorney and mayoral candidate. It all culminated with a deadly showdown at the Golden Flamingo Casino, where Bill took vengeance against the man who had trapped the souls of his family. With help from Esther's ally and police detective Javi, the crew escaped the Golden Flamingo Casino after a cursory questioning. After spending time to heal and process recent events, the crew reunited and inspected a mysterious domino-sized object. Upon investigation, the domino opened a portal to a pocket dimension. There they found an office meeting space with five empty chairs. No clues could be found about the table or whom the meeting space was meant for, so the crew left the way they came. Back in the city, the crew decided to focus on investigating the disappearance of many different children throughout the city. Faye went to meet with Lisa, a mystical and wise woman who resided in the deepest part of the city park. Lisa made a deal with Faye, insight into the missing children, in return for Faye expelling some vagrants who were dwelling in her domain. Faye agreed, but when she found the vagrants to be homeless children, she chose to instead offer the children a place to live. When Faye returned to Lisa to receive her answers, Lisa was frustrated with Faye for not chastising or punishing the vagrants. She denied Faye the answers she sought, and in return, Faye decided to cut off all ties with the woman she previously felt so connected to. 
The crew met with Linda Lockwood, their informant and ally, to discuss their findings. Upon seeing the design on the domino, Linda told the crew about the Cabal, a clandestine shadow organization that was behind everything going on in the city. Linda wanted to see the portal that the domino summoned and the strange room it led to. Upon entering the portal and returning to the meeting space, the room disintegrated and the crew and Linda were left trapped in a world of endless swirling mists. In order to save everyone, Bill revealed a new manifestation of his powers and flew everyone out of the portal, only to find they were miles above the city and falling. Faye acted quickly and turned a small rooftop garden into a veritable lush landing space for everyone to land on. After surviving a near-death experience, the crew decided to question the children that Faye had saved from Lisa's wrath. Using her meager teacher salary, Faye rented out an apartment next door to her and Esther's apartment for the children to live in. The children spoke about how they ran away from their homes to join the Rat Pack, a gang of children liberated to live life freely. The crew decided to look more into the Rat Pack, as it may be linked to the missing children. All right, so the questioning was cut short as Bill received a phone call from Pedro, a former drug dealer connected to the investigation that brought the crew together. Pedro feared that someone was following him and asked for Bill and his friends to protect him. A meetup with Pedro was arranged, and on their way to the meetup, Faye and Ren spied a mysterious figure lurking in the shadows. Pursuing the figure to a nearby rooftop, the duo was caught unawares as a shadowy figure threw an industrial AC unit at the two of them. Ren was hit and flung from the roof, and Faye used the powers to save him. But the shadowy figure escaped into the night as a result. The crew called Ren's employee, Deja, to help repair the damage dealt to the servos and equipment in Ren's head. While Ren and Deja shared a moment alone, the rest of the crew questioned Pedro, confirming that the shadowy figure was indeed Pedro's stalker, but their identity was still a mystery. Again, the questioning was cut short as Esther received a call from Javi from the city morgue. Someone had broken into the city morgue and stolen a body, the long-dead body of Marcus Malcolm a man who had created and sold the illicit state-altering drug from the crew's first case together. Upon investigating the morgue, the crew found that the suspect matched the description of the shadowy figure who attacked Faye and Ren. The crew decided to do some more investigating into Marcus Malcolm and why this cold case was suddenly resurfacing. Their investigation led them to the Promethean University, where Marcus Malcolm was a GA for a professor named Dr. Piotr Jacobi. In a journal written by Marcus, the crew read about experiments on an island that Dr. Jacoby was involved in and that Marcus wanted to distance himself from. As they prepared to leave the university, they were ambushed by an old nemesis, Jesse, a co-worker of Bill's from the Golden Flamingo Casino. The loyal Jesse sought vengeance on Bill for killing her employer. A fight broke out on the college campus, but Jesse's revenge plot was ultimately a failure as she was defeated and taken into police custody. The crew went to Marcus' last known residence, his grandmother's house. Upon entering, they found evidence of a drug manufacturing business that had sat unused for months. From the darkness of the abandoned house, a hulking man with animalistic features and broken speech appeared. Faye was able to calm the bestial man and ascertain that his name was Nick, and he was the one who had been following Pedro, but only because Pedro had smelled like Marcus. Nick told the crew of an island where awful experiments were done to him, and of the other beastmen that were hunting him. As if on cue, the beastmen arrived and attacked. By working together, the crew was able to kill the savage beastmen, but not before Esther and Ren endured heavy injuries and Marcus' grandmother's house was destroyed along with any possible evidence or clues. 
To make matters worse during the fight, Nick disappeared into the night with the decaying corpse of Marcus Malcolm. As sirens wailed in the distance, the crew had to make a hasty getaway to avoid getting caught up in any subsequent investigations or questions. Taking time to heal from the injuries and do some investigating into their own running questions, the crew separated. Driven by his dreams and a desire to be reunited with the souls of his family, Bill searched for others connected to the Mayan gods known as the Bacop. While taking a jog, Ren found himself led unknowingly to a warehouse where he encountered an advanced AI. The AI announced that it was from the future and was here to correct the time data stream and that it needed Ren to help it by killing someone before the damage could be dealt. After receiving an eviction notice for her bar, Esther looked into her father's past and found an old picture of her father, Harvey, and a woman named Lena who was shown wearing the very ring that Esther now wore on her finger. Faye looked into the string of missing children and realized a startling connection to the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. During this time, the children Faye had been caring for left to join the Rat Pack. Gathering the crew together, Faye told everyone of her findings and led them to Lockley and Catan to speak with old ally, Mohammed. Faye's investigation and world was sent into a spiral as she came face to face with Mohammed's law partner, Woodard Lockley, the reincarnated soul of Robin Hood and her soulmate. Shaking Faye from her love-struck awe, the crew spoke to Woodard and Mohammed about the Rat Pack. While Woodard was tight-lipped about the Rat Pack, Mohammed confessed that the Rat Pack had been targeting Mafia-owned businesses lately. Using this information, the crew triangulated the Rat Pack's next target, a downtown construction project atop a skyscraper. Sneaking onto the construction site at night, the crew found the project patrolled by Mafia soldiers, while members of the Rat Pack lurked in the shadows, placing bombs around the site. The crew tried to accost the Rat Pack gang members, but Faye inadvertently alerted the Mafia soldiers to their presence, and a shootout began. Ren took possession of a construction crane and used it to buffet and otherwise distract the Mafia soldiers as Bill grabbed one of the Rat Pack kids and tried to make a quick getaway. Things took a deadly turn as Ren intentionally crashed the construction crane into the tower, destroying it and trapping Mafia, Rat Pack, and his own crewmates under the rubble. Bill saved Faye and Esther from the rubble and escaped right before the bombs detonated, destroying the topmost floors of this building and killing Mafia soldiers and Rat Pack gang members alike. A wedge of distrust was driven even further between Faye and Ren, as Faye blamed Ren for the death of innocent children, but Ren viewed his actions as a necessity for the survival of the crew. The emotionally fractured and physically broken crew returned to the law offices of Lockley and Catan. There, they questioned the one child they had successfully rescued from the construction site. Esther used the mind-bending powers of her ring to calm the child and found a magical song had been controlling his actions. The child, named Luke, recounted his time in the Rat Pack, though his memories were fuzzy. He remembered a hideout in the sewers, he remembered other children like him, and he remembered someone referred to as the Music Man. Leaving Luke with Woodard and Muhammad, the crew delved into the sewers. There they made their way through the maze of putrid tunnels and were attacked by a Rat Pack lookout. Ren knocked the child out with a blast from his incapacitator gun, much to the dismay of Faye and the rest of the crew. The crew continued through the tunnels and found the Rat Pack's hideout, Wonderland, a place of unsupervised youth and revelry. Upon entering, the crew was welcomed by X-Man, a youth that Faye had rescued from the city park weeks ago. Despite fervent pleas and arguments, the crew could not convince the children to leave Wonderland behind and return to the world above. Although X-Men's confidence in the Rat Pack and its mission was shaken, he agreed to leave with the crew. 
As they prepared to leave, the crew witnessed a child being dragged through the crowd, captured, and brought to Wonderland against his will. Faye could not let such a thing lie and went to rescue him. As she did, the populace of Wonderland snapped to attention and attacked the crew at once. Using his technopathy, Ren stunned the crowd of delinquents and the crew escaped with X-Man and the other child in their custody. After escaping Wonderland, the crew decided to follow their only remaining lead, Dr. Piotr Jacobi, a man who has been in the shadows and seemingly involved in their mission since the beginning. Following clues, the crew journeyed to an abandoned prison island facility and found it overrun with horrendous monster-men hybrids like from the night at Marcus's grandmother's house. The crew avoided the monsters and found their way to an underground laboratory where they came face to face with Dr. Jacoby and his latest experiment, a monstrously mutated Jimmy the Butcher, a mafia capo that the crew had clashed with many times before. In a last-ditch effort to save himself, Ren decided to stop holding back and unleash the full power of his incapacitator gun. However, Ren was unprepared for the power of the attack and lost control, destroying the lab, killing Dr. Jacoby before he could be questioned further, and allowing Jimmy the Butcher to escape into the night. After the explosion, Ren found he had no memory of any of the crew's time together over the past few months. A new, less hostile, and more cooperative Ren emerged, but Faye refused to forgive this new Ren for the sins he had committed before. With Dr. Jacoby dead, the crew returned their attention to the Rat Pack. Questioning the three children now under their protection, the crew made a startling discovery. The music man, the adult kidnapping children and manipulating them to enact gang warfare, was none other than beloved district attorney and mayoral candidate Pip Hamill. Filled with righteous fury, the crew hunted Hamill down with the express intent of killing him. In that vein, Esther called upon a favor earned by her father and owed by the mafia boss Carmine Giuseppe. Rather than using the favor to learn more about her father, Esther agreed that Carmine take care of Pip Hamill. He agreed to do so, but Esther had no idea what the favor would cost her. She watched as her surrogate father, Detective Javi, shot Pip Hamill in the middle of a crowd of people. Javi was immediately arrested and taken into custody. Meanwhile, the crew followed Pip Hamill as his bodyguards rushed him from the scene. Following Pip Hamill, the crew found he was not being taken to a hospital, but rather into the sewers. The crew worked their way through the tunnels into Wonderland, which they now found empty and devoid of the children that had once filled its cavernous space. Instead, they found the wizard, a mysterious figure who had threatened them before, along with a wolf, a deadly assassin, and Jesse, apparently no longer in police custody. A fight began, and what the wizard had predicted would be an ambush turned against them as the crew put their differences aside and worked together to defeat the wizard. The wizard then whisked the crew away in a familiar portal. Surrounded by swirling mist, the wizard revealed themselves to be Linda Lockwood, the crew's confidant and ally. As the crew reeled from this revelation, Linda released evidence of the crew's past crimes and battles to the major news outlets around the city. Immediately, speculation began circulating the four vigilantes, and they were branded as the most wanted people in the city. Linda left the crew on the city street, as distant police sirens grew closer and closer. The city. Um, 
mashed up combo of the old world and the new, of the mundane and the mystical. By day, this city is everything it seems. A city with tower and skyscrapers, potholes that never seem to stay fixed, and stiffs and ties and dames and high heels. But at night, the real nature of the city comes out. At night, the shifty-eyed stalker becomes a creature with dripping claws and a maw full of teeth. At night, cars roll down the streets with no one in the driver's seat. But when morning comes, nobody can remember how the night really went. They remember through a fog, or more appropriately, a mist. No one knows where the mist came from, or its true nature. In fact, most everyone in the city doesn't even know the mist exists. The mist doesn't just cover up either. It affects everything and everyone in the city. Changing up, warping up. Most of those affected by the mist, they take what the mist gives them to turn a profit or pursue selfish gains. But there are some, just a few, that fight the good fight. They put their necks on a line to protect the city from the nefarious ne'er-do-wells. It's not always easy. In fact, it never is. But these legends don't surrender. This is a story of a few of those legends. Their story needs to be told. And it needs to be heard. A city at nighttime. A moon hangs overhead, bright in contrast to the cloudy sky around it. Along the horizon, a storm rolls in over a dark, empty harbor where no ships come in and no ships sail out. Beneath the dark sky, a city lit by man-made machinations, but dark all the same and for different reasons. Sirens wail in agony as the city weeps. The city's savior, its favorite son, has been shot. He wanted to save the city from corruption and seemed ready to accomplish the momentous task ahead of him. Then, they shot him. The city does not know the fate of their cherished son. They do not even know the identity of his assailants. But what's this? In the darkness of a meager living room, a regularly scheduled broadcast is interrupted by breaking news. The man on the screen tells of horrific crimes previously unknown to the public. An explosion at a downtown construction site. A shootout at a locally owned pizzeria. The murder of a student at Prometheus University. What could all of these crimes have in common? A perpetrator. Or rather, a group of perpetrators. Other news outlets report the same. Information delivered by an anonymous whistleblower, who is the city's safety at heart. Pundits immediately began to theorize connections to other crimes throughout the city. The string of missing children. The attempted murders of Pip Hamill, the city's beloved son and savior. The anger of the city burns hot. Who are these criminals? The city demands. These terrorists must be brought to justice. 
Four pictures flash on the TV screen with names and identities of the suspects. The words wanted and at large flash at the bottom of the screen. The camera cuts to a street pockmarked with potholes. Standing on a sidewalk, nearly hidden beneath discarded newspapers and empty fast food cups, are four individuals. Their identities match the identities of the suspects that the city's vengeance hungers for. They are tired. Worn down by a fight for justice they had no intention of becoming wrapped up in. They are hurt. Covered in blood that is not just their own. They are wanted. Betrayed by someone they thought their ally. The sirens grow closer. The four take one last look at each other and then run. Where they plan to run to, not even they are sure. But an animal instinct that has helped them survive this long tells them one thing. Run. And they do so. The camera cuts to an apartment stairwell. We hear heavy boots stomping up the echoing staircase. A metal door slams open and a group of armed SWAT team members file into a hallway. They assume a position on either side of a door with a doormat out front of bright green, pinks, yellows, and reds. Across the hall, a neighbor throws open their door and glares out. One of the officer points to a badge on their chest and the neighbor quickly slams their door shut. We hear a deadbolt being slid into place. Safeties are clicked off. Hands are placed on shoulders. A countdown has started. The door splinters open under the weight of a battering ram, and the SWAT team files in with deadly precision. The apartment they're in is crowded with thriving potted plants, making it seem more like an arboretum than a downtown apartment. The squad goes down the hall, half of them entering into the first room on the left, with the rest going to the room at the end of the hall. The room at the end of the hall has even more potted plants than in the living room. Two shelves are shoved into two corners of the room, one is laid down with teaching books and other curriculum for an elementary classroom. The other features movies such as Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Men in Tights, and The Adventures of Robin Hood. Next to the DVD cases are framed portraits of different male actors with silvery smiles and green feathered caps. All of them have an arrow knocked against their cheek and a bow held outstretched and ready to fire. One of the SWAT team members starts to open each DVD case and remove each portrait from its frame, looking for clues. The men walk to one wall that is completely covered in vines and flowers. Grabbing a fistful of the foliage, they tear it away, revealing a conspiracy theory board with sticky notes connected by threads of twine and yarn. One of the SWAT team members pulls out a camera and takes a picture of the board. From the other end of the apartment, an officer shouts. They found children. Three children. One of the officers recognizes Alex Johnson, one of the children that had gone missing. The children seem afraid and confused, but an officer speaks to them in a soothing, reassuring voice that they'll be okay. Tessa, what happened to Faye on that night? As Faye heard the sirens, she turned and ran down an alley heading towards Lockley and Catan. Um, as she ran, she threw her phone as far as she could from her without even calling Woodard. Um, she contemplated 
going to her apartment and getting everything and checking on the kids, but knew that that would be the first place she that the officers would go. She sprinted towards Woodard's, um, and as she got towards the law office, he came running down the stairs, grabbed her, and took her to a secret hideaway that he has. Um, and you see this picture of Faye and Woodard sitting together, Woodard holding a sobbing Faye. Um, and then as the night progresses, as Faye is in this cottage area that's hidden, um, you see her sleeping off and on uh, with Woodard making her tea and comforting her. And then as she gets up, you see her and Woodard talking um, and he comes back from the store and begins dyeing her hair blonde and um, got her new clothes. And so now Faye is completely blonde and wears um, kind of old oversized t-shirts with leggings and tennis shoes um, and doesn't have anything related to flowers connected to her. Um, and so that's kind of what you see for the first 24 hours after. So the camera cuts from that scene to a city street, a small unassuming storefront with a banner reading Pascal and associates occupies the entire screen. A black SWAT van tears into view with a deafening scream of tires. A squad of SWAT officers jump out of the back of the van and rush through the glass door. Inside are two employees that are putting in overtime to make up for their erstwhile employer. Their bloodshot eyes tear away from the glow of their computer screens and go wide. The officers raise their rifles and shout for the employees to put their hands on their head and get down on the ground. With looks that are equal parts confused and terrified, the employees look at each other as they are restrained with their hands behind their backs. The other officers rush to a door at the back of the room with a cat-themed inspiration poster haphazardly thrown onto it. The office is small and empty. On an office desk, there is a pile of ignored case files that have taken to imitating the Leaning Tower of Pisa for their enormity. Other cat-themed posters hang on otherwise unremarkable walls of this small office. The officers fan out, searching the room, tearing down posters and looking for hidden mechanisms. Opening up the desk, an officer searches through its contents. She pulls out an orange prescription bottle. She shakes it, and small white pills rattle around inside. The only marking on the bottle is a curious logo that resembles a spiky fleur-de-lis, or a crown with a spear through it. No other evidence can be found in the office but the pill bottle full of the same drugs that swept through the streets only months ago is all the evidence the police officers need. The employees of the small business are forced into handcuffs and led out of their business to be questioned at the precinct. Zach, what happened to Wren on that night? So you see a flash and he is holding his hand up to his forehead looking at the possibilities of escape and he sprints towards the warehouse district and is looking for where the AI spoke to him first. You find that warehouse where you, you met that AI that spoke to you and uh, gave you your mission and so you find that warehouse what do you do? 
I burst into the warehouse and am frantically looking for the mechanism to turn the AI on or the or, or mechanism to go down into the um, secret stairway. Okay. Yeah. You find that stairway. It leads down. We see the uh, sterilized hexagonal patterns that light up as you walk through it, almost as if it's responding to the circuitry in your head that glows with that same light. And you get down to this wide open space. You can't see the corners of the room because they're covered in shadow. But as you kind of step into this one cone of light that is um, inexplicably cast in the middle of this room, uh, the voice speaks to you. Welcome, user and Pascal. What do you require? I require safety. The police are after me. A protocol for anonymity is available. I shall enact it for you. And you see, like, portraits of you popping up and, like, uh, I guess, like, the, like, you see, like, a little blip of where you are and it kind of disappears off the map. Um, what else? I need you to purge my office computer. Are you able to do that? I can but it seems an outside user has already accessed your files. Can I stay here for the next while for safety? Yes. Are you ready to pursue your mission in order to save the time data stream? Yes. And I think we cut from that scene. The camera cuts to a suburban neighborhood. We see a house that is empty save for pictures frames of a smiling father, mother, and son. Windows have been left open, allowing a gentle breeze to tussle the sheer curtains. A shadow darts by the open window. Another stalks up to it, rising a flashlight to glare inside. From the back of the house, there is a sound of metal striking a wooden door. The door jam shatters and the door flies open. Men in dark clothing with bulletproof vests, automatic rifles, and tactical gear storm through the open door. Their boots kick aside a pair of child's shoes that were placed reverently on a mud rack, unused for months. The armed men fan throughout the house, their rifles and trigger fingers trained to go off at the slightest movement. Their search of the house is careful and precise. Two by two, they go into each room. In the living room, a vase of flowers that has been barely kept from death by a hand ill-suited for gardening sits next to family portraits, but there is no one there. They filter into the bathroom. Next to the bathroom sink is a trio of brushes, one blue, one peak, one green. On a rack on the wall, there is a pair of his and hers towels, and one towel that is colorfully decorated with superhero motifs. They pull back the shower curtains and raise their rifles to fire, but there's no one there. In the master bedroom, we see a king-sized bed, but only one side of the bed has been slept in recently. They search the closet. On one side of the closet is a collection of women's clothes that have collected a thick film of dust, but no one is there. Finally, the armed men kick in a door to a little boy's room. Posters of tricolor heroes adorn the walls, while action figures of those same heroes line the shelves. The room is meticulously maintained, and not a single item is out of place. One of the officers grabs one of the stuffed superhero dolls as his compatriots search under the bed, the toy chest, the closet. The officer grabs a speaker on his collar and speaks into it. He's not here. 
he says in a disappointed voice. The doll falls from his hands and lands in an empty trash can. Jaime, what happened to Bill on that night? Well, um, Bill saw everybody running. And so he did the same. But he kind of has a slight advantage when it comes to running. Um, And so he sprints around the corner and calls down his Nimbus. And he flies up above Eyeline into the clouds towards his house. So he sees the flashlight and he knows what's about to happen. But he also knows that he has the element of surprise. So he waits for them to break in and to clear everything and even to start heading out with their weapons dropped and he comes in through an upstairs window. What does he find or who? I think uh, as you kind of come through that window, you see one officer with their back to you kind of shining their flashlight in the closet that you and your wife shared for many years. Don't touch that. I think he turns around and quickly reaches for the rifle at his, and he is knocked out. I hit him with a cudgel. Nice. Does anything come over his radio? Yeah, just a little chatter, like clearing the kitchen, clearing the backyard. Nothing in the child's room. All right. So I look around the room, and I see one of my books on the nightstand. So I go and grab it. I look for my messenger bag and it's hanging on the door to the closet. I grab it and I put the book in there and I make my way to my son's room. Mm. I think as you start walking down the the hallway to your son's room, you see two uh, SWAT team members kind of step out, one from like uh, a closet, one from like the bathroom. They see me? Yeah. So, I'm put up my kite shield and I uh, kind of just run at them hopefully before they get their senses to you know aim and fire and I strike the one on the left and try to push him into the door he just stepped out of Mm -hmm. and he goes flying and I turn around what is the other one doing at this point he's going to come at you with the butt end of his rifle yeah wrong okay and so I hit him uh, like an uppercut with with the cudgel, and he like flies up his head and shoulders, hitting the the roof above him, and then he falls back to the ground. Yeah. At this point, I'm looking around quickly because I imagine somebody's gonna hear. Yeah, what's you going on. you hear some steps quickly coming up the uh, the stairs. Yeah, and there's nothing. I think I go into the bathroom. There's nothing in there, so I go into my son's room mm-hmm. and look around, see what if anything I want to keep because I want to keep something. I'm going to grab his toy Woody and put it in the bag and then kind of run downstairs. Mm-hmm. And I think we like, we see you pick up that uh, toy, stick it in your messenger bag, and then like the camera stays in the room as you run out the door and run towards the hall or the staircase that they were coming up and we see like the flashes of gunfire. Yeah. And, like, we hear screams of fighting. We might see, like, one SWAT team member, like, fly across the screen. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then it cuts. And uh, where does Bill go from from there? Um, I think the next scene is Bill floating c- 
kind of um, above water, just like reading off of the side of like a cliff face um, and taking notes. And, and I think that maybe the camera pans and you see the island, the abandoned island. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think think that's where I'm going to try to stay. Wait, was that still inhabited by half men, half monsters? No. So if you remember once the explosion happened, like all the monster we released, men ran away. Yeah. Yeah. Although there was a whole jailhouse filled with them and they did not escape because nobody let them out. Gotcha. So I think, I think I'll head there. Okay. I'll become the king of the monsters. There you go. Okay. Who's going to look for me on that island? No one thought to look there before. Yeah. Okay. And then the camera cuts from that scene to the interior of a SWAT van. Uh, a team of well-armed officers sit on metal benches, checking their ammo clips and fastening their body armor. A lieutenant stands at the front of the van, briefing on the target. The target is a younger woman. Her dad used to own a bar before he committed suicide. She took up running it afterwards, and the bar fell into disrepair and debt. Her father had apparent connections to organized crime in the city, and the daughter was even seen talking to crime boss Carmine Giuseppe at a gala event from this past year. The shooter from tonight's assassination attempt on DA Pip Hamill was carried out by a detective who frequented this bar and had a long-standing ties to the proprietor. The lieutenant stresses that the target is to be considered armed and dangerous, and all preventative measures should be taken against her. The SWAT van screeches to a halt. They've arrived at the bar, with practice quickness, the officers jump out of the van and fall in line only to find the bar in flames. A raging inferno spreads across the face of a seedy-looking dive bar with a neon sign reading Morty's above the door. The fire department is called. The fire is put out. But not before it hungrily devours the bar and all the stores of alcohol inside. It takes hours to get the blaze under control. And afterwards, the fire marshal informs the SWAT team that whoever was inside the bar when it caught fire would not have made it out alive. Carrie, what happened to Esther on that night? Um, as soon as Esther left the crew, um, when they got back up to street level, um, she knew that um, the best option would be for her to just go on the run. Um, but she couldn't go on the run before going to her father's bar one last time and getting um, the black book and the few other things that she kept there that she didn't keep at the apartment. So she went back to the bar for those items. Um, while she was at the bar gathering things, um, a sudden fire started. Um, that's it. Did... Esther make it out? No. So Esther died in the fire? Yes. Okay. After we see those scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to season three, baby! Esther's dead! Jaime threw his hands up. <laughs> in, this is bullshit. And is like moving his head around frantically. <laughs> so we see all those scenes. The camera zooms out over the city. And we see the raging fire at Morty's. We see 
the abandoned prison facility over in the harbor. We see lights and sirens and uh, we see the city with the mist billowing up between the skyscrapers and in between the tenement buildings and the abandoned alleyways. And then the screen goes dark and down below uh, we see the words three months later appear on the screen and as those words fade away um Faye do you want to describe the, the next scene yes so um throughout um the time of the three months we had all managed to find a way to communicate with each other um, especially after learning the news of Esther's death and so there was a um, mailbox like one of those blue ones that you put the mail in not just like a one outside the house that um, we would all tape letters underneath to and so about two weeks ago um, Faye taped two letters, one for Bill and one for Ren. And when um, you each opened them, you saw a wedding invitation. You saw a wedding invitation um, for Faye Carver and Woodard... Lockley. Lockley. Lockley and Catan. Mm. Duh. Um, <laughs> That's I didn't know. I it's like, been a while since we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I should know the last name of the guy I'm marrying. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Um, so you see this invitation, and it is for, um, you don't get a lot of information, but you get these coordinates to meet at where you're going to be picked up. Um, and so do y'all go to said coordinates on said date? Yes. What is said date? The three months later date. Yeah, it's, um, it's sometime in the fall. What are the said coordinates? How do I know this isn't a trap? <laughs> And things haven't been intercepted. Okay, you don't. it's not a trap. <laughs> you don't Admiral know. Akbar. <laughs> yeah. You don't know. Do you still go? I do go, but I do not look like myself and I don't walk straight in. Okay. So do we have a scene where Bill and Ren are, like, as they're arriving to these coordinates? Because you said they were going to be picked up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do we have a scene where y'all are arriving? Yes. Okay. Who arrives first? Rin. Yeah. Okay. Rin, uh, how do you approach this uh, this area? I'm... So, like, it, it has the said time or whatever, and so Rin shows up two hours early and sits across on a bench reading a newspaper. Or across the street, sorry. Uh, reading a newspaper and just watching everyone that goes by. And you... Obviously, you don't hear it, but like in Ren's head, um, all the faces that walk by, it's like analyzing, analyzing, no threat detected. Mm. Um, and it's just doing that to each of the people. And we see it from like Ren's point of view where like a circle appears on that person's face and then like a little readout of their data yeah. appears next to him. Okay, I dig it. And it's like a, it's a rainy, drizzly, kind of depressing day. Perfect. Yeah. So you're sitting across the bench. Or you're seeing across the street on the bench, mm-hmm. uh, and then Bill, how do you arrive? And does Ren recognize you? Bill arrives in a trench coat, 
like a bowler. Okay, hat. bowler hat. He has a oh, yeah, yeah. he has a goatee, and I'm wearing sunglasses, and I am in a cloud above Ren because I knew he would come, and he's kind of my scapegoat. <laughs> because if, if anything happens to him, I'll try to get him out of it, but let him be the bait for a second okay. and see what happens with the procession. So that's my mind state. And maybe I'm a jerk, but I, like, I'm imagining my character and the level of paranoia. And I think that that's, that's where I would be. Okay. Okay. And uh, eventually y'all wait there. The appointed time rolls around, and a uh, a limo pulls up in front of you. And for a second, it's reminiscent of when the limo pulled up to pick you four up, and Esther made the deal with Carmine Giuseppe. Um, the driver door opens up, and this hulking brute of a man with a black suit and sunglasses steps out. Oh, hi, Ren. Well, I guess Bill didn't show up. Uh, anyways, I was sent to get you. A little bit of a, a to-do for Faye and Woodard, but uh, we don't have to talk about that on the street. <laughs> and Mohammed walks over to the door and grabs it and opens it up and kind of motions for you to step inside. I look around... Um and see nothing, or see nothing alarm me, and so I get up and walk towards the door. Okay. Bill, you see Mohammed uh, drive a limo up, and Rin gets into it. I follow them. Okay, in the cloud. Okay, so he closes the door, drives off. Uh, Faye, where does this limo take them? So the limo travels down... Um what doesn't appear to be a familiar path at first, but as the limo gets closer to the destination... Um, Bill and Ren start to recognize water treatment plant 23. Mm -hmm. Um, That has not been touched since the original explosion. And so there's this rubble um, kind of poured everywhere. It's very clearly abandoned. And Mohammed pulls up and parks at this door that has just a few roses around the edge. He opens up the door. Ren, you get out of the SUV, or not the SUV, the uh, the limo. Yes. And I guess does Mohammed walk him in? Yeah. Okay. Right this way, Mr. Uh, Pascal. Oh, well, thank you. You're uh, the first familiar face I've seen in a long time. Yeah. He, like, claps a big hand on your shoulder. It's good to see you, too. I was real worried about you. Well, all of you. I don't know. Faye took, uh, you know, Esther's, uh, accident kind of hard. I think it would be good for her to see her old buddies. Anyways, right this way. And he walks into the, the rubble of the water treatment plant 23. Bill sees him go inside. He recognizes kind of where they are. And he, he lands near the entrance and he looks, he looks like a little bit torn. Like, obviously, this seems like a situation that would be fine, but he just can't ever be sure. But you also see in his face that he's a man who's tired of keeping his own company. 
um, and he misses his friends and so that eventually wins out he takes a deep breath then he goes and he, he walks through the door okay so as Bill and Ren enter, you see the water treatment plant on the inside has been completely um, changed. So it's covered in vines and flowers that make no logical sense that they could have grown that quickly in the course of three months. Um, it's like a nature wonderland in there. Um, there's clearly like an arch um, that is very wedding-esque, um, made out of vines and flowers, and it's very reminiscent of the flowers that were created the first time that Woodard and Faye kissed. Um, and so it's all intertwined there. Um, there's a few chairs and some tables, um, but it's clear that everyone will just be standing right around um, Faye and Woodard. And you see down what you would assume to be some sort of aisle, uh, Woodard standing there and talk, catching up with Muhammad. Muhammad has taken off his limo outfit and is just in his normal Muhammad self. Um, Woodard is there in um, a tux and looks very nice and is kind of like up on his feet, jumping and excited. The camera moves over to a corner where nobody can see Faye. And Faye, you see now, has short shoulder length blonde hair. Um, she's got lots of makeup on. Um, she has a flower crown that this is the first time she's ever worn any flowers since the incident. Um, she's got this flowy, long sleeve lace dress on um and as you like get closer you can see the lace is different leaves and flowers of her favorite um flowers and so all of that is just as a very like casual wedding dress um and she's standing in front of the mirror wiping tears from her eyes um and looking at a picture that is in the corner of the mirror of her and Esther about a month before she lost her. Um, and so she looks at the picture. Could you could you describe what, like, what is the picture? Because oh. I, I can't imagine Esther, like, being super happy to be no, in this picture. No, no, no. So the picture is Faye and Esther in their, in the boy's apartment, um, the children's apartment. And Faye is smiling at Esther as the kids are running around. And Esther is looking at Faye with her arms crossed, with her leg to their jacket on, and like rolling her eyes. Um, but Esther's got the smallest smirk. And that's the piece that Faye holds on to. Mm -hmm. um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> Carrie just rolled her eyes. Um, <laughs> and so Faye, like, puts her hand over the picture, wipes the last tears from her eyes, and walks out to the group, um, sees Wren and Bill, and runs up and, like, hugs them and begins crying all over again. It's uh, nice to see you too, Faye. I feel like Wren and I are the most awkward people to have to hug. <laughs> yeah, that's and, fair. And, yeah. With, and with like three months of no human contact, we're probably both just like Super stand, stiff. standing Cringy. stiffly and awkwardly. Um, but I think I think eventually we kind of warm up into it. And, um, and you see, like, I picture my, Bill's face is just being like that picture right mm -hmm. just like completely stone-faced and stoic and like sad 
and you just see kind of a like a gl- glimmer of a smile but also like a wistful tear because it's a it's a great thing to be coming together for but it's a sad thing to remember the person who isn't there mm-hmm. so that's a very emotionally charged moment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Faye composes herself um, thanks for coming um, it means a lot to me that y'all are here um, and yeah I can't talk anymore I'll, I'll cry again so let's just do this thing um, and so she puts Bill on her side and Ren on Woodard's side and Mohammed officiates um, and it's just the five of them and mm-hmm. so they go through their vows and Faye tells Woodard like oh I love you so much I've been loving you for years and years and years um, I'm so glad we found each other and our souls have found each other and you know all the gushy stuff mm-hmm. um, and they kiss and get married and yay and um, just me clapped Uh, (laughs) what are the drinks (laughs) Uh, yeah and so then like we pull out the food and everybody's partying and all that good stuff Um, and you see Faye and Woodard move towards a window um, and Faye is leaning into Woodard and he's hugging her and you just hear Faye whisper to Woodard I would give anything to just have her see me in this moment I miss her with my whole heart I mean I must confess I didn't know her that well but uh I'm sure she's smiling no she's definitely not yes I I said it and I didn't believe it myself (laughs) I I don't think I ever saw that woman smile (laughs) Faye chuckles and like smiles as she moves the tears off she's definitely rolling her eyes as she's watching this from above and I love thinking of that it zooms out and up and by it I mean the camera camera, zooms um, out and up and you see a um, figure that is completely dressed in black um, and it's just like the silhouette of a woman Mm -hmm. and she's just looking down watching everything that's happening Mm -hmm. Um, and you see something that's just a little out of place for a human mm-hmm. on her back um, and if you zoom in close you see her face and she has um, her arms are crossed and she has just the hint of a smile as she looks down on her crew Hello friends, and welcome to the mid-roll of episode 57 of Misconceptions. I'm your host, David White, right back at you, your boy, in the chair, with the microphone in front of his face, coming to your ear holes. Okay, that was a little excessive. I realize that now. I apologize for it. And going forward, I promise that I will probably do that again. Anyways... 
On to some housekeeping things. Uh, We have had some changes to our Patreon. As you know, Jaime moved back to Houston to be with his family, and uh, we were making monthly trips down to Austin to meet up with him halfway to uh, record with him and just hang out with him. Uh, But that is no longer a possibility due to some life changes and different things that happened. Uh, We're just not going to be able to make those monthly trips anymore. We are still recording with Imi, so, you know, don't sweat that. It's just that we are going to take the money that we were using to pay for our gas and our meals when we made these trips to Austin. We are going to instead start putting that towards paychecks for everyone involved with the podcast. This is something that I have wanted to do for a long time. Uh, but we had other things pop up and they, you know, kind of needed money to happen. Uh, but now I'm really excited to start putting money towards paying my friends for helping make this awesome podcast that we do together. Uh, because we do, we sacrifice a lot of our time, a lot of our days off from work to sit down and record all together. And I know we're playing a game, but we are playing a game and making a show about that game that we then have to present to people. So it's not like we just come in and relax and goof off, although we, you know, obviously do goof off. Uh, But we are trying to make content that is really enjoyable to the people that listen. Our new goal on Patreon is $400 a month. That is what we are shooting for. Uh, So we are around... $100 to go until we get to that point where we can start giving paychecks to people. So, if you like the show, if you like the people that make this show, consider giving to us on Patreon. Uh, The $1, $2, $5 levels, those are all great, affordable options. And if you are financially able to, we would love for you to support us and keep the show going and also to put a little money back into the pockets of the people that make it. Along with that gold change to Patreon, we changed some of our reward tiers, uh, namely one that I'm very excited about. At the $20 level, we have a new level called Harnessing Our Voices. And at this level, uh, you can request any one of us to record uh, a personal message. You know, maybe you want us uh, on your uh, answering machine for a month. Maybe you want us to introduce your next game session or game night with your friends. Uh, It's all up to you, but at this level, you can tell us what you would like us to record. We record it, we send it to you, and you have a little audio snippet of our voices. Now, there is a rule to this. It cannot be uh, prejudice. It cannot be hate speech. It cannot be uh, vindictive in any way. Uh, But, I mean, let's make it silly, let's make it fun, and, uh, you know, you get our little voices in there. All that to say, if you can support us on Patreon, we would really love it. And this money is also going to go towards the cast of Sins of the Father. What? What Sins of the Father, you ask? Well, that is our secondary sister podcast. You know, that makes it sound like we have a primary sister, and we don't. This is our secondary podcast who is also our sister podcast. But it is a D&D actual play, and it is uh, our fourth episode 
actually came out today. Once you're done listening to this episode, you can hop on over, listen to the first four episodes of Sins of the Father, if you haven't already, uh, because we are really making a great show over there, and it would be a shame if you missed out on these uh, great players and the great DM Jackson that is uh, telling a story for us, and uh, just these great characters. We have some really vivid characters that are going on in Sins of the Father, and uh, that party is popping. Now, we do not pay anything to advertise this show. The main way people find our show is through word of mouth, by you sharing us with people that you think might enjoy our show, and we thank you so much for that. One of the main ways people find us is through iTunes, and iTunes has kind of a word of mouth system for the digital age in their rating and review system. So, if you do not have the financial ability to support us on Patreon, which is totally understandable, But if you do not have that financial capability, I mean, everybody has a capability to leave us like a little four or five star review. And you know what? If you do that, if you write a review and you copy and paste it and you send it to our email, misconceptionspod at gmail.com, we are going to give you a little something. We are going to send you a unique misconceptions decal just for you, just as a way to say thank you for promoting us to new listeners. And you know what? If you are somebody who has already written us a review, we will also honor your review. Just copy and paste it, send it to us with your uh, address, and we will send you a little decal. And I would like to give a shout out to someone who is supporting us on Patreon, Marlo Bogus. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate that you are wanting to keep this show on the air. Thank you so much, Marlo. And now to transition from silliness to seriousness, um, there are some bad wildfires that are happening in Australia. Um, uh, I don't know people personally in uh, Australia, but we do have friends in Australia who listen to this show. uh, And to our friends who are in Australia having to deal with these fires, uh, we see you and we want to help. Um, In fact, If you go to the Misconceptions Twitter right now, there are some links to donate to people and organizations who are helping to fight these fires and keep them under control um, because the situation is just bad in Australia right now, folks. And so if you would like to help them and support them, uh, go click on one of those links on our Twitter feed uh, and help them out in that way. Uh, They would really appreciate it. I would really appreciate it if uh, you did that as well. Let's go ahead and get back to the episode. As you are watching this scene unfold, you, uh, from amidst the rubble, uh, you kind of see like two pieces of rubble kind of be pushed apart and pushed to the side. And then you're kind of still watching, it's still drizzling, kind of dreary. And then you see one brute of a man uh, with a tracksuit kind of step out of the rubble and he kind of looks around and then another almost identical man in a tracksuit steps out and then a third and the third is kind of carrying something and they just cautiously look about 
and I think at some point there's like this moment of laughter coming from the ceremony and they like freeze and stop and look over their shoulders and then they start running off into the into the rain and mist so when they're coming up they're coming up towards where the ceremony is happening no it looks like they were underneath the rubble and they moved the rubble aside and then they ran away I take one final glance at um, my crew and the happenings, and I follow. Okay. At a distance. Okay. How do you follow? What do you mean from above? I'm flying over them. Okay. And I think we see, like, Esther jump off the building, and then we see, like, from an eagle's point of view... Uh, these three figures kind of running do you like move to intercept them or are you just following them I'm just following them okay Um, you should definitely roll something to keep up with them but do you think this would be a sneak around or take the risk I was thinking sneak around okay I guess the only tag I would be using is um, giant owl wings okay it's two dice, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since we've rolled. But it's 2d6 plus your power tags. Oh, no. So what'd you roll? And a 2d20. A five. And Esther is back. <laughs> she smashes so, into a building and actually dies this time. <laughs> so we see from the eagle's point of view, or maybe better yet, the owl's point of view, these three figures running, uh, and then like the sun comes out from behind a cloud and kind of illuminates... Esther and these beautiful brown feathered wings stretching out from your shoulders Uh, and like we see the shadow illuminated on the ground and these three figures kind of turn around and look up and they see Esther kind of flying after them. The one that was holding something kind of against them keeps running forward and the other two look around and grab this Uh, they each grab a piece of rubble that was thrown by the explosion and they grab it and they go to lob it and toss it towards you. Roll a face danger against a broken four status. Okay, so walk me through this. They hit the wings and your wings (laughs) snap. you roll 2d6. Okay. And what tags are you adding? I am adding, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Owl ring. Revolver. I am adding. <laughs> react before it happens. Well, can I use react that before it happens? Good. You sure could. Okay, I'm gonna use that and my Aegis armor. Okay. I kind of forgot you had that one. Hmm. Ten. A ten. So you avoid that damage. So what does this look like? How do you avoid it? Uh. I block that shit. No. <laughs> you say not in my house. <laughs> She's a rift of Dikembe Mutombo. I um. I don't know. I just picture myself like kind of like swerving out of the way. Like I kind of like close my wings in a little bit and just like shift my weight mm-hmm. in the other direction and mm-hmm. just like. And you like sail between the two. Yeah. And like one like 
comes up on your left side and you manifest that Aegis armor from your ring. Mm-hmm. This roll go, rose gold plate armor like manifests on your mm-hmm. left shoulder and like it hits it and it just the rock shatters into pieces as you keep yeah. flying. Uh, <coughs> the two people on the ground kind of <gasps> they have terror in their face and they run to catch up with the uh, that third person that kept running ahead. Mm-hmm. What do you do? continue following okay so you continue following them mm-hmm. they kind of get past so they get to um, the fence perimeter of the water treatment plant mm-hmm. and you see that uh, obviously some bolt cutters have been used here and the fence has been peeled back uh, and to your observant eyes it looks like it's been peeled back for a couple of months. Like, the way it has kind of folded in on itself, it's kind of rusted there. Uh, but they kind of slip through one after the other and keep running. Like, they've done it a number of times. Like, they specifically kind of, have and the gone way, through it before. And the way they kind of slip through, it's, it's practice. Very routine. Yeah, almost. Um, but they keep running, and they get to the city, and they kind of start to weave into the alleyways. Uh, I think you need to roll something to not lose them. Maybe investigate? Or take You know what? No, I think investigate would be good. So what would you add to your investigate roll? Uh, My investigate tag. Okay. (laughs) And I guess I could use my giant owl wings again at this point, maybe? Or not really. No, because it isn't a... Never mind. Well, I think maybe your leverage above the city can kind of give you some, so yeah. Okay. So those two? Mm-hmm. Okay. Esther usually never rolls, so... This is hard. Ugh. Seven. A seven? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get one clue. Or no, you get two clues, right? Because you rolled I with the power of two. But the clues can be fuzzier, incomplete, or partial truth. Oh. Um, are they because I get I'm basically I'm getting two questions right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so are they all three going in the same direction or are they splitting off when they get to the city they are staying together as they run so they are together not splitting up and this doesn't count as one of my questions I'm just wanting to verify information in the beginning mm-hmm. one of them was carrying something mm-hmm. it looked you couldn't see what it was but mm-hmm. it looked like he had something against his uh, chest okay what did he have against his chest okay so as you they they <laughs> turn around the corner and you kind of swoop into the alleyway to get a better view uh, and you look and you see it not not to be trademarked but it's like a big gulp this giant cup that he's cradling against his uh, chest and as you kind of look at it you see like like wisps of vapor and then you're kind of hovering there you catch that and you see the one who is holding it and the one right behind him but wait where's the third and you hear this rattle of metal behind you and you turn around to see one of these men in the jumpsuit or tracksuit jumping across or jumping from a fire escape towards you and I think he collides with you and he is twice your weight 
and he like grabs one wing and grabs your hair and pulls it back and like goes to headbutt you and I think you two are fighting and as you're flapping your wings trying to stay aloft uh, roll a face danger and I don't think you could roll a or I don't think you could use your wings in this one because you used it for your investigate mm-hmm. but I can use my armor sure and I want to use my inspire calm uh, I would say that you could roll that as a change the game okay uh, do you want to roll a change the game with your uh, inspire calm uh, I do Okay. I want to de-escalate the situation. Okay, go ahead and try to roll a change the game with a plus one. A uh, ten. A ten, okay. So you uh, get a minimum of two juice, and you can choose from the following options. Create a story tag, burn a power tag or story tag, give or reduce a status, scale up the effect, prolong the effect, or hide the effect. The other two are completely running on, like they aren't stopping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe, I guess maybe I'm wanting to give a status. Okay. What status do you want to give? Um, peace of mind. Okay. I don't know. Um, so you're wanting him to like, uh, like not attack you. I'm wanting, yeah, I'm wanting to deescalate the situation. Like I'm wanting to come off less of a threat. Okay. Um, so you want to give yourself a status or give him a status? Give him a so status something that so that he's him. seeing me in a different light. Trusting. Okay. I think would be a good one. So okay. you give him a trusting one status. You still have one more juice. What um, do you want to do with that? I guess I, I... Well, I said I... I think I said I wanted to prolong the effect. So prolong the effect. So it's going to last past this scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, he still jumps at you, but your your ring flares... And we see that light mimicked in his eyes and his blows against you kind of come slower, but he's still trying to hit you out of the sky. And by now you have like flown up out of the alleyway. You're both above the cityscape. Uh, So go ahead and roll a face danger against a beat up two status. Go Esther, go. Yeah, Esther is kicking much ass. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> probably won't last long I think she's Alster now <laughs> I want to use my armor mm-hmm. and that's probably it okay so you're gonna roll face danger with plus one nine nine okay you both coil up into the sky fighting he is coming down with these hits against you you manifest the armor across your head your shoulders your arms you're kind of blocking the hits as they hit you and then he plants both of his massive feet on your chest and just grabs you by the shoulders and pushes you and you go spiraling out of the sky and he falls towards the cityscape behind him um we cut back to the inside of water treatment plant 23 Faye wiping away the tears saying i wish she could see me in this dress And then there is a crash. The roof kind of crumbles and cracks. Um, Woodard turns around and the bow has already manifested in his hand. He is pulling out an arrow to shoot whatever is coming. Mohammed, uh, his skin fades away, replaced by fur and claws. His snout kind of manifesting as he is getting ready to go uh, bestial to fight whatever is here. Uh, What about the rest of you? 
Bill is startled and a little bit tipsy. Um, and so he stumbles backwards and procures a spear and a, a small round shield. Okay. It's all he could muster at a moment's notice, and he's bracing himself for whatever's going to happen. Okay. Uh, Rin, what are you doing? Rin, is, Rin runs towards the back of the um, I was say warehouse. water treatment plant. Okay. And is basically, like, hiding. Okay. Behind, like, some of the rubble or something. Yeah. Okay. Faye, um, in your wedding dress. Yeah. Faye. Quick change. <laughs> Faye, in full preparation, created one of those wedding dresses that, like, you can take off the long piece and it becomes, like, a short dress. Mm -hmm. Um, No. She takes off the long piece and it's a romper. So it's shorts. And it has pockets. Yes. (laughs) It so has pockets. (laughs) So Faye hears the crash, sees Woodard, like, pull for his bow, rips off her dress part. Not her whole dress. She is not naked. <laughs> so that she's wearing a romper and like is looking around at the vines on the building already like starting to pull them towards the like she's not rolling to move anything, but like the vines are starting to move towards the thing that has just crashed into okay. the building. And as the rain drizzles into this wedding ceremony, this figure is laying there and kind of pushes some debris aside. You see huge brown wings cascading off their shoulders, this rose gold armor all across them. Uh, Esther, what do you do? This wasn't the plan. End of episode. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Misconceptions. We will be back with our next episode on January 20th. We do have a Facebook and Twitter, so if you have both of those or either of those social media accounts, you can give us a like or a follow to get up-to-date information about the show, behind-the-scenes pictures, or maybe just goof and gaff with us because we like to have fun. If you would like to contact us via email, we do have an email at misconceptionspod at gmail.com, and you can contact us that way. As has already been stated, we do have a Patreon, and this show is wholly supported by the monthly patronage of our friends from our Patreon. If you would like to join that elite group of supporters, please click on the link below. City of Mist is an RPG created by Son of Oak, and you can find more of their products at sonofoak.com. The Misconceptions theme music was composed by Aaron Wharton, and you can find more of his music at aaronwharton.net. And that is all for this week's episode of Misconceptions. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope that you're excited for Season 3, because I know we are. And we will see you back here next time. Keep it nerdy, y'all.